tasa bhagavato arahanto samasambodasa namo tasa bhagavato arahanto samasambodasa namo tasa bhagavato arahanto samasambodasa homage to the enlightened one the buddha blessed one and I want to um, welcome you all here tonight. It's Saturday night. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been um, very touched, maybe the word is awed, by um, the sincerity, the heart, the courage of um, this endeavor, this practice, this retreat. So I want to first just um, bow to you all to acknowledge your sincerity and heart. Taking the inward journey is not an, an easy affair. In my mind, it's probably the most noblest of endeavors to embark upon and one of the most difficult. And at the same time, I also feel on a very practical level, what else is there to do when we wake up and realize that we are here just for a brief amount of time? almost seems like there should be a headlines in the newspaper. Hey, don't you know we're going to die? What's going on here? <laughs> Somehow that doesn't make the headlines. <laughs> in the year 399, St. Augustine wrote, The people travel to wonder at the height of the mountains and wonder at the huge waves of the seas and the long courses of, of the rivers. People wonder at the vast compass of the ocean and the circular motion of the stars and then they walk right past themselves Mm -hmm. without ever wondering. Mm -hmm. Year 399. Mm -hmm. Long time ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those of us that do begin to wonder perhaps wonder deeply what is this life and I so much remember that moment for me four years old riding in the back seat of my parents car and we might have been going to my nana's house or something and for whatever reason and I have no idea because I don't believe my parents were talking about death but I had this realization at four riding in the back seat of my parents car that I was going to die and that everyone was going to die and that that it could happen at any moment. And I remember mentioning my realization to my mom and my dad and they very lovingly said to me, don't worry, Bobby, it's not going to happen for a long, long, long time. 
And I felt with those words that I felt like the energy behind the words, even I can remember now, that it was out of love, it was out of care, but it wasn't true. And I knew that. And of course, uh, now 55, and of course, uh, you know, any cemetery I visit, I see many people buried that were born after my birth date. And know that a long, 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 long time is getting shorter, shorter, and shorter, and shorter. <laughs> and to further emphasize this understanding of death, in the next few years, I lost my brother, who I shared the same room with. He died of Tay-Sachs disease. My grandfather, who lived downstairs, who I was very close to, and then across the street, my friend Ellen Chabot, my best friend, died in the middle of the night. So by the time I was 10, I had had a lot of death in my life. And this led me, these early experiences, on an internal journey. What is this life? And I was a very confused young person. Lost school teaching me reading and writing and arithmetic didn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until I was in undergraduate school, actually having flunked out from my sophomore year and being readmitted back in warning, uh, on a warning, that I decided that maybe I should learn. <laughs> but what am I interested in? This is with the coaching of my mom. What am I interested in? Because school really didn't make sense to me. And I saw this um, in the course catalog, this class called Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and Zen. And for whatever reason, I thought, hmm, that sounds interesting. I think I'll take that. And the very first... Uh, uh, class, we were assigned the Tao Te Ching by Latsu, and the person that was teaching this was unlike any other college professor or teacher or educator I had ever experienced. His name was Bill Jackson, and he was a meditator. Mm -hmm. And he had a very different feel. It really came out of his practice. And so just the energy there was very different. And I remember reading an epigram number 47 of the Tao Te Ching where it says, there's no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside you. Mm -hmm. And as if a redwood tree was picked off the ground and walloped me on the head, <laughs> I woke up in that moment and realized that I had been looking in the wrong places. I had been looking outside of myself, lost in my confusion. Of course, a young child with so much grief and the Beatles growing the hair long. And mm -hmm. I, I grew up right outside of Boston in the, um, you know, in the 60s and 70s, and it was a wild time, and I was very confused. <laughs> and this epigram led me back into this investigation that 
I sensed, and also because of my teacher, I could see he was different than other professors. He he had this practice, and I could see there was something to this, and it involved me going inside. Saraha says that within my body are all the sacred places of the world and the most profound pilgrimage I can ever make is within my own body. And the perennial wisdom of turning inside is not, of course, just held in the East. It's found in many cultures. Even, I love this from St. Isaac, who lived in Iraq in the 7th century. He's a Christian mystic, and he says, be at peace with your own soul, and then heaven and earth earth will be at peace with you enter into the treasure house that is within you and you will see the things that are in heaven for there's one single entry this ladder that leads to the kingdom is hidden within you so dive into yourself there you will discover the stairs by which to ascend Dive and deep into yourself. There you will discover the stairs by which to ascend. In this retreat, I feel like we have been diving deep into ourselves. And at times, and we've been talking about it in the last couple of evenings, and particularly last night with Mary Grace's uh, beautiful talk on the hindrances, these visitors that make us feel tired and angry and confused and doubtful and wanting and restless and so forth. It's out of this sense of being in our own cloistered world. Sometimes I feel like a meditation retreat is starring me, myself, and I living in the Hall of Mirrors, and everywhere I turn, it's me. Sometimes it's a pretty picture, and sometimes it's not. And I think many of us know about um, the challenges, the obscurations, if you will. And so sometimes it takes this solitude and being by ourselves to really feel what's going on, to learn. This is a very beautiful quote, and I got this so many years ago. It's from a shaman from a caribou Eskimo tribe, and his name is Igjugarjuk. <laughs> it could be a she, so pardon me. I don't know what this shaman's gender is. Igjugarjuk. It's translated, and it says, A true wisdom lies far from humankind. And it's out of loneliness and suffering that it can be reached. Privation and suffering alone open the mind to all that is hidden to others. So in some ways we've, we have been in privation and not that we wish suffering upon us, but we see how that our minds can experience some suffering. And, of course, there is opportunities that I trust all of us are beginning to experience of what is hidden inside. Bhante Gunaratana says that somewhere in this process of meditation, 
you'll come face to face with a sudden realization that you are completely crazy. <laughs> that your mind is a shrinking madhouse on wheels, barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. But no problem. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. <laughs> it's always been this way. Perhaps you just haven't noticed. <laughs> it takes commitment, effort, skillful effort to be with ourselves. I'd like to just read you something from Hurricane Carter. This is very powerful quotation of his. He was a, a, a prize fighter that was falsely accused of murder and was, was sent to prison for it. He says that the most memorable bout I ever had in my life was with myself. I had to fight all the bullshit, all of the arrogance, all of those things. When I was in solitary confinement, I was in a state of hatred. I hated everybody. I hated the judge I hated the criminal who said I was at the scene of the crime. I had to come to terms with that. And finally, I had to give it up. And that took a long time. But I knew I had to be free. And that was my mission, to remain free, to stay above the prison system, which is the lowest level of human existence. Sleeping people kill one another. I'd rather be awake than asleep. Sleeping people do all kinds of terrible things to one another. I'd rather be awake. Hurricane Carter. Well, who are we? Why do we exist? Big question. said from Rod McClaver that it takes 50 trillion cells to make up the human body. And each of those cells in turn consists of atoms, countless millions or billions of them depending on the function of a specific cell. And the atoms, they consist mostly of empty space, protons and neutrons surrounded by electrons empty space, just as the universe is mostly empty space. The human body, this entity of mostly empty space, is held together, space unified, even for only a little while, by a life force. A life force needs a purpose. Without a purpose, perhaps there's no reason for unity. The atoms existed before the human body and they'll exist after. And in the meantime, in this short interval, the atoms are held together by this indescribable and unknowable force. As we sit, the mystery at times unfolds. Who are we? And of course, we can base it upon our history, what we've accomplished, and our interactions with others through the years. But it's really quite mysterious when you think about it. 
How vast is this universe? Mary Grace has uh, inspired me. She's been really into the universe of late, studying astronomy, and sent me a, a link where you see the astronomy picture of the day, and you click it on, there's these amazing pictures of the universe. Some looking at one recently, it looked like an embryo one particular area another was uh, mandalas, I mean it's like it's a big universe (laughs) (laughs) who are we? yet within this hall of mirrors we see a lot of things about ourselves as we sit in the cooker of our practice and part of our skillful effort in working with ourselves, because at times we encounter within ourselves some very challenging aspects. It's important for us to have a possibility of being open to seeing ourselves from another perspective. And I'd like to invite us as a part of practice to try that on. Now, no doubt, I think we're all pretty convinced that this room looks exactly the way it looks like (coughs) from the chair that you're sitting in. But, of course, if I asked a very radical notion of everyone to get up and go into another seat, we would have a very different view of this room. Part of our practice in mindfulness is this beginner's mind, this fresh mind to be open to experience. I'd like to appeal to that possibility of seeing things differently. Mm. It's called a cookie thief. The woman, a woman was sitting at the airport one night, several long hours before her flight. And she hunted for a book in the airport shop and bought a bag of cookies and found a place to drop. And she was engrossed in her book but she happened to see that the man beside her, as bold as could be, grabbed a cookie or two from the bag between, which she tried to ignore to avoid a scene. While she munched those cookies and watched the clock as this gutsy cookie thief diminished her stock. And she was getting more irritated as the minutes ticked by, thinking if I wasn't so nice, I'd blacken his eye. With each cookie she took, he took one too. And when there was only one left, she wondered what he'd do. And with a smile on his face and a nervous laugh, he took the last cookie and broke it in half. He (laughs) offered her half as he ate the other. And she snatched it from him and thought, oh, brother, this guy has some nerve and he's also rude and he didn't even show any gratitude. She had never been so galled and sighed with relief when her flight was called. She gathered her belongings and headed for the gate, refusing to look back at that thieving ingrate. Mm-hmm. She boarded the plane and sank in her seat and sought the book, which was almost complete, and she reached in her baggage and gasped with surprise, for there was her bag of cookies in front of her eyes. <laughs> if mine are here, she moaned with despair, then the others were his, and he tried to share. <laughs> Too late to apologize, she realized with grief that she was the rude one, the ingrate, the thief. (laughs) 
So our perceptions of things can get us stuck. <laughs> Very convinced, my bag of cookies, he's stealing them. There's so many times in our practice where we can get very locked in in our own self-perceptions that imprison us. My wife and I have this wonderful tradition on October 14th of every year on our anniversary where we switch sides of the bed for a full year. (laughs) We've been doing this for 20 years. (laughs) We don't have to flip the bed over and stuff. (laughs) But we do this on purpose. It's kind of like a renewal of the relationship. It's a willingness to see things different, to be open to all possibilities. I once mentioned this in a... MBSR class that I was teaching and a woman that was married for 58 years said, you know, I've never switched a side of my bed in 58 years. I'm going to go home tonight and tell my husband to move over. (laughs) I was very curious next week. (laughs) Would she really do it? So I asked her and she said, I did it. And I said, wow, how was it? And she said, I didn't like it, so I told him the next night to move back. I appreciate, though, 58 years and being locked in some groove and the willingness to get out of the groove. And so I'd like to ask us, and it is funny and all, but being willing to look at how we've got into our groove that might be like a train track, that might be like the Grand Canyon, the mother of all habitual patterns. All water goes to the Grand Canyons. Of course, it digs a very beautiful scene. But there's a lot of propulsion to continue going in the status quo. And we could get into a whole karma talk here, but I'm not going to get into it too much. But we have strong patterns that are learned through our years of living, our reactivity. And there's a possibility that we can make a change when we become mindful, when we become aware I trust some of us know that story about the autobiography in five short chapters. In chapter one, you walk down the street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk, you fall in. You're helpless, it takes a long time that you finally get out. Chapter two, you walk down the same street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk, you fall in again, you know where you are, you know you did this to yourself and you get out quickly. Chapter three, you walk down that same street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk, you fall in again, it's a habit, you know this is kind of what I do. <laughs> and maybe we've been parked here for the last three days in chapter three. Yeah. Or not. Chapter four, walking down the street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk, seeing the space, if you will, the awareness, and walking around the hole. Chapter five, walking down another street. The potentialities of when awareness comes that we can begin to recognize and do things differently. So even as we bring the light of our awareness perhaps to even old patterns and old ways, the fact that we are now becoming aware of them and seeing how they play themselves out is gaining some knowledge. The moment that we realize that we've been again disliking ourselves, feeling we're not doing it right, putting ourselves down, but we are becoming aware of it, in that moment of that awareness, we are beginning to break the pattern. In time, perhaps, patterns begin to change. It takes practice. This is why we're here. 
takes practice to to wake up. I'm always uh, inspired with the story of Siddhartha Gautama having lived his first 29 years in a state of a lot of pleasure and education and fine arts and iPods and iMacs and he had everything. But somehow in his 29th year he woke up as if from living in a dream world. And I used to think, well, this is just a mythological story. How could someone not realize that his aging and illness and death? But then I began to really realize, hey, have I really got that yet? I'm 55. Have I really woken up yet to really getting that? And I've, I've mentioned this in other talks. Like There's a beautiful Pali word that describes this moment of waking up and the catapultion to its practice. And it's called... Pali has uh, these one words that just say so much, and this one word is called samweka. And samweka consciousness is when one realizes that one is going to die and that it can happen at any moment, and because of that knowledge, it catapults one into a sense of spiritual urgency for deliverance of truth, of peace, of heart. And it's powerful for us to just reflect upon what the Buddha woke up to in his 29th year and just about every day in my practice, I try to reflect upon these five remembrances that I'd like to just uh, share with you now and invite you into recollect with me. The first recollection, remembrance, is that I am of the nature to grow old, and I cannot escape from growing old. <coughs> Second, I am of the nature to have ill health. I cannot escape from having ill health. The third, I am of the nature to die. I cannot escape from death. And the fourth, remembrance, all that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature of change and I cannot escape from being separated from them. The fifth remembrance, my deeds are my closest companions. I am the beneficiary of my deeds. My deeds are the ground on which I stand. These are very powerful recollections, remembrances. I invite you to work with them every day. It was these recollections that Siddhartha Gautama awoken to and catapulted him into a sense of urgency to understand this meaning of life. Jane Kenyon writes in her poem, Otherwise, that I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, and a ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birchwood, and all morning I did the work that I love. And at noon I lied down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. 
I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls, and I planned another day just like this day, but one day I know it will be otherwise. His Holiness the Dalai Lama he said that you know everyone wants to be happy nobody wants to suffer we want to be happy we have a desire for happiness this desire for happiness is this driving force to exist and all the different manifestations that we do in, in the world. Tara Brock, meditation teacher and writer, wrote a beautiful book called Radical Acceptance. She says that the same universal force of attraction that gathers atoms into molecules and holds solar systems spinning in galaxies also joins the sperm with the eggs and brings people together into communities. Talking about that force from earlier, this unknowable force, this universal force of attraction that gathers atoms into molecules and holds solar systems spinning into galaxies and joins sperms with eggs and brings people together. As human beings, we desire happiness. And, you know, in the psychological folks, they'll talk about, you know, we as human beings have basic needs. Biological needs and drives and spiritual yearnings. We have a need for, for security, food, sexuality, emotional connection, bonding, creativity, mental engagement, self-satisfaction, self-worth, worth. In our lives, with our desires for happiness and living, we to survive, we, we want to survive, we want to thrive, we want to be fulfilled, and these desires push us. What the Buddha discovered was that there was a catch. That no matter how gratifying all of these desires are, they don't last. This is a very powerful statement. There's a catch here. They don't last. In some ways, this is the meaning of the first noble truth. Buddha, of course, talks about birth is suffering, aging is suffering, illness is suffering, being separated from those that you're suffering. But this sense of this desire to become, to want... It's wonderful when we have it, but there's a catch. None of this lasts. And I don't say this to try to bum you out. It's just, it's just the way it is. It's just the way that it is. So we can say because of that, it, it had this sort of an inherent quality that we can't fully be satisfied. Like, don't, don't we just crave for like just a period at the end of the sentence? Like, it's done, it's complete. <laughs> But yet in our perennial wisdoms and other 
you know, cross-cultural traditions, we find even, I love the Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. To everything, there is a season. Everything turns. Time to be born, a time to die. You know the old song, and of course, from the Ecclesiastes. Everything, there is a season. (coughs) Without our awareness, we will continue to seek to gain pleasure in what does not last. And of course, if we like it, we go for it. If we don't like it, pushing it away. Kabir writes, Friend, please tell me what I can do about this world that I hold on to and keep spinning out of. I gave up some clothes and I wore a robe. But one day I noticed the cloth was well woven. So I bought some burlap, but I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings, longings, and now I discover I'm really angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. <laughs> when the mind wants to break its link with the world, it holds on to something else. <coughs> So what are we really longing for? I trust many of us and myself are longing for a place to be at home. And unfortunately, as I looked in my younger life, I was looking outside of myself for that longing, not realizing that perhaps it can be found inside. And even when we look at our own addictions or compulsions with, you know, (coughs) ice cream, sex, work, whatever... But there's something about it, like the ice cream, the sex, the work, the this, the that. Like, what is it that we like so much about it? I've really studied that inside myself. And one of the things that that I noticed, and it happened one day while I was eating some ice cream. (laughs) While I was eating, I was in a place of complete saturation. It was heaven. And then all of a sudden there was one spoon left. And it all came back. What am I going to do? Oh, I'll get another bowl of ice cream. But what I noticed as I brought my awareness was that while I was in that place of satiation, there was no self. There was no me. There was no my. I was at home with not even any self-awareness. And it was only when that was going away that the sense of solidification of the Bob show came back. And what is he going to do with his life now? (laughs) Now that the ice cream's gone, what am I going to do? And I think we know that moment, like something so wonderful, then all of a sudden it's leaving. What am I going to do? How can I be with myself now? What do I do next to fill it up? and hold on to it if I really like it, or push it away if I don't. Is there another way to live? What I love about the Buddha's teachings is not only talking about... it. Well, actually, I'll take a step back here. What the Buddha's teaching is talking about is not just dealing with the vicissitudes of life. A lot of our Western psychology, at best, is helping to deal with the vicissitudes of life, but the Dharma is speaking of something much more profound and radical. We're talking about liberation. 
we're talking about the end of suffering, or maybe slightly less suffering. <laughs> yes! And that sounds good. That there's a possibility that we can experience deeper freedom. And we can try in little things. Maybe the craving is coming up to have that bowl of ice cream, and you can see all the trajectory of the impulse and the propulsion to go and get it, and you sit with it, and you experience it, and you acknowledge it, and you open to it, and the breath comes in and out, and it kind of falls away. And then there's a moment of just such expansion. Perhaps if we begin this journey looking inside ourselves, I think that one of the things why addiction is so hard is because these objects make us feel good for the moment and then they're gone in the next. Is there a way that we can find something inside ourselves that we can rest into? Not being dependent upon the outside object. And there's moments, of course, in our lives where we do have that sense of non-self that Buddha talked about, this profound teaching of this, these characteristics of existence, this dissatisfactoriness that I've been talking about, and the impermanence that we've also talked about, and the sense of non-self. Non-self, these aspects that, that imprison us. And Paul Simon, he sings in a song many years ago, it was called You Think Too Much, and he speaks to a moment where the self begins to fade. And the words of the song go something like this, have you ever experienced a moment of grace when your brain just took a seat behind your face? <laughs> and everything was just sunny, everything was just funny. Have you ever experienced a moment of grace? And I think we know what he's talking about there. There's these moments, and maybe we even had them here on the retreat. It was just sunny and funny, and our brains took a seat behind our face, and we just felt connected. Not only connected, we felt perhaps the, that we were the universe. In that brief moment, there's a sense of connection. And then, of course, we all know about when it's not, and we're separate and we're disconnected, and we're alienated, and we're separated, and it's really hard. We know about that. I just love that reading that Mary Grace gave last night uh, of Archan Shah with the still forest pool. And in some ways, with our efforts here, we're learning to sit in that forest pool. And yes, many strange creatures will come and go. In time, though, we will know the nature of all things. This is the peace of the Buddha. As we learn to sit with ourselves. As we learn to sit with ourselves and perhaps lessening that sense of grasping and aversion. I want to just uh, share this beautiful 
poem, which is really about the third noble truth. When we say the third noble truth is this release of the grasping and the aversion, the dispelling of ignorance. And Kabir writes that I went searching for the shop where the merchant would say, there's nothing of value here. I found it and I stayed. These poems arise out of the richness of not wanting. I went searching for a shop where the merchant would say, there's nothing of value here and I found it and I stayed. Our friend Sumedo Samato <laughs> he writes that he took on this practice for a couple of years he says the practice of letting go is very effective but mine is obsessed with compulsive thinking you simplify your meditation practice to just two words let go and rather than trying to develop this practice and then develop that just let go, let go, let go I did nothing I did nothing but this for two years Every time I tried to understand and figure things out, I'd just say, let go, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you now to save you from getting caught incredible amounts of suffering. Let go. (laughs) Not so easy to do. But what a practice. I love this. He took that on for a couple of years. Let go, let go, let go. What a practice. It's not easy to let go, and I want to acknowledge that. At best, perhaps we use the wisdom of the Beatles, learning to let be. Letting be, another marvelous practice. But what would it be like to let be? Learning to sit like the Buddha. I'm always reminded uh, in this moment of, uh, of an image that I like of uh, Frosty the Snowman. And you know, Frosty's sitting in this little ball, and you shake him up, and the snow's going all over the place, right? Remember that from a little kid? But good old Frosty's a meditator. (laughs) (laughs) And steadfastness sits with right effort. Everything's coming at him. Frosty sits, and gradually it comes down. (laughs) and we can begin to sit like Frosty, the Buddha. (laughs) There's this image of the Buddha (coughs) sitting underneath the Bodhi tree and Trying to be serious here. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, the Bodhi leaves look like snowflakes. <laughs> After long and arduous practice and self modification, Siddhartha Gautama decided that this was not the path to peace and decided to eat again. And to go and sit underneath this tree. And it's a beautiful moment. They say that um, while he was sitting there, that he recalled a memory when he was a child. 
And it was another one of those beautiful days that perhaps Paul Simon was singing about where everything just was perfect. Sun was just right, the wind was just right, the colors, the it was one of those incredible early spring days and he was recalling himself feeling so at peace, this little boy, this little moment. And he was so sensitive and quiet. And then the farmers began with their plows to dig into the soil, breaking the soil to plant the seeds. And and in that moment, he could almost hear the cries of the worms being cut by the plows. And it's such an amazing moment where there is such incredible beauty and such incredible sorrow. And and this kind of like, this is life. This is life. It's both here. It's both here. And he became mindful of his breath as a little boy, and he recalled this memory, and he began sitting underneath the tree and becoming mindful of the breath again. And it's a very interesting time, this vigil that he took, speaking of our right effort, because it's not easy to wake up. And Mara came, and Mara is, you know, on a psychological sense, we can say Mara is the manifestation of our shadow. But in the mythic sense, Mara is also this, like, uh, uh, a being that can transform into many different uh, aspects. And Mara didn't want the Buddha to wake up, and so he manifested all different types of things, brought in armies of seduction, temptation, armies of demons. <coughs> it's very interesting how that Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, he was being bombarded by fear, by lust, by aversion, and he met each one with an open heart and acknowledged this was what was here, and yet didn't react to it. Acknowledged it. Saw how it came and went. Didn't push away any of his experience, yet didn't cling to his experience. This is an amazing mythic story of one that is sitting with themselves, being with tremendous amounts of fear coming at them and lust and temptation coming at them. There's such strong forces for him to react. And he acknowledged these forces. Maybe there was feelings that were coming up inside him, but he acknowledged them. Ah, here's this. Here's fear. Let me meet the fear with an open heart. Here's temptation. Let me meet this. Let me meet all of this. And noticing how it was coming and going. As he opened himself, we call this the middle way. Treading the middle way of not grasping, not pushing away, acknowledging what's there, he began to understand the nature of all things. He began to understand the causes of suffering and its end. Mara poured it all on, and Siddhartha began to wake up, sitting in stillness and open-heartedness. The Buddha roared as the morning came and the earth shook as a witness to his awakening. Mara was defeated. 
And the Buddha says that through many a birth, I wandered in samsara, the world of birth and death, seeking but not finding the builder of this house. Sorrowful it is to be born again and again and again. O house builder, thou art seen. Thou shalt build no house again. All thy rafters are broken, thy ridge pole is shattered. My mind has attained the unconditioned, achieved is the end of craving in ignorance. This is a momentous moment. And in our right effort, we can begin to resolve in our own way, sitting like Siddhartha Gautama underneath the Bodhi tree. I trust that we have all in this retreat been visited by Mara many times. And as we work with our practice to meet it with an open heart, to meet our fears, our pains, our sorrows, our aversions, to acknowledge their presence, and we come to see these are the wild creatures that Archan Shah was talking about, the very strange, mysterious creatures that come and go. And we sit and we watch these creatures come and go, and we begin to understand the nature of these things. We can begin to grow in what we call equanimity that is associated with wisdom. It's a wisdom factor. It is the understanding, the nature of change. The understanding, of course, of the causes of suffering and its end. It's said in the text that even after the Buddha's enlightenment, Mara kept on visiting the Buddha from time to time, and Ananda, his attendant, would say, oh no, the evil one has come again. <laughs> but the Buddha, what he'd say, is that he'd say, I see you, Mara. And then he'd invite him in. Maybe make a cup of tea for him. And then he'd go. We can all practice I see you, Mara. I see you, Mara. The importance of naming and acknowledging what's present dispels the fear, the ignorance. Just like a candle, even a single candle in a dark room will illuminate and bring light into the darkness. May we never underestimate the power of our own awareness and heart and love. So I'll just end with a maybe a reading or two. William Stafford wrote a couple of days before he died of cancer. It's called The Way It Is. And there's a thread you follow. It goes among the things that change. But it doesn't change. And people wonder about what you're pursuing and you have to explain about the thread. But it is hard for others to see. And while you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen. People get hurt or die and you suffer and you get old. Nothing 
you can do can stop times unfolding and you don't ever let go of the thread. Nothing you can do can stop times unfolding and you don't ever let go of the thread. So, I'm going to leave you with one more poem and we'll just go into silence. A perfect poem, Keeping Quiet by Pablo Neruda. It speaks about what would the world be like if we could all just be quiet for 12 moments. We've been keeping a lot of moments in quiet together. He says, now we'll count to 12 and we will all keep still. And for once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms too much. It would be an exotic moment without rush and without engines, and we'd all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm the whales, and the man gathering salt would not hurt his hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors would put on clean clothes and walk about with their sisters and brothers in the shade doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity for life is what it is about. But if we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems to be dead in winter and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count to twelve and you keep quiet and I will go. So let us just sit for a minute. Just as you are, easy. May all beings be at peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.